0: Let's do it. Main Man. Main Man. Main Man. Main Man. Main Man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically.
1: Main Man. An interesting story. A very entertaining story. A very long, wonderful adventure.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 56 in our series exploring the history of Mainman, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business side of rock and roll. The Mainman philosophy was to provide financial support that enabled their artists full creative freedom. The management team pioneered outrageous and often controversial promotions and marketing techniques that soon became the benchmark for the decadence and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore.
1: Wow, this is kind of interesting. Why not have a whole circus going on around Bowie?
0: Mainman worked with a diverse range of clients that included Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Amanda Lear, Mott the Hoople, Danica Lespie, Mick Ralfs, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithfull, David Bowie and Lou Reed. It's just a little moment in time, that's the fun of a record, but it's just this very ephemeral thing that happens to be captured. You're not there anymore. Any song was recorded that day at that hour. If it had been the next day at a different time, it could have come out a different way, or the lyrics could have changed. As we continue to mark the 50th anniversary of the rise of Ziggy Stardust, we're talking with some of the key main man people who were part of this extraordinary rock and roll adventure. In this episode, Tony DeFreeze tells the story behind Bowie's very rushed trip to see Elvis Presley in concert at Madison Square Garden in New York in the summer of 1972. In the middle of the first leg of the UK Ziggy Stardust tour, why did Bowie, who was apparently afraid of flying, cancel a few shows at short notice and fly across to New York to see Elvis Presley in concert? For the first time ever, Tony DeFreeze reveals all.
1: This is a story about secrets and moles fear of flying and the real reason for david's experience of seeing elvis presley live in the garden in new york in 1972 my first experience of elvis is seeing his first film love me tender in the uk when i was just 12 years old a natural born actor singer also a songwriter and performer who later performed in His first non-singing acting role in Flaming Star. That's a movie where he plays the lead as a mixed-race Native American and American character, which is true to his real-life ancestry. Elvis really had that ancestry. I remember seeing Love Me Tender and being astonished at that performance. The story itself was based on a real story, Of the Reno brothers, there were three of them. Two of them went off to fight in the Civil War, and one of them stayed behind. And the one who stayed behind was Elvis, and he falls in love with his brother's intended bride. And then they hear that the two brothers have been killed, and they get married. And it turns out the brothers weren't killed, they've come back, and everything falls apart from there on in, and... Presley dies at the end of the film. But he co-wrote the song, Love Me Tender, when it was released by RCA. As a pre-release, it went gold, which was the first time in history that any record had ever gone gold before it was actually released. (laughs) That meant that 440-odd thousand records had already been ordered before it was released. By the time it was released, it had sold 2 million records, which was another record. So Presley started setting records really early. So in that sense, let's look at Presley. He's born on the 8th of January, 1935. He's famous, and famous in the sense of American famous and globally famous by the time he's 20. And he offers that generation from 10-year-olds to 20-year-olds get a completely new and different hero and inspiration Presley isn't just a different singer, he's a different performer, he's a different dresser. He does everything differently. And the audience love that, and the press love it. And eventually, and quite quickly, the world love it. Mickey Mouse, Marilyn Monroe, and Presley are probably the three most well-known characters in entertainment history. 10 years later, In 1947, Bowie shares that January 8th birth date and also offers his 70s, 80s generation another hero and inspiration in many different areas. But unlike Elvis, David's not a natural-born performer or his actor. He's not, in either case, what Presley was, clearly completely and entirely comfortable with himself himself on stage, on screen, and off stage. David has to get that confidence. He has to become that person. And it takes him a long time. In fact, it's not until the Sirius Moonlight tour and shows in 83, when David is actually 36 years old, that he really comes into his own as having that confidence, that aura, that ability because he, in that particular outing, he's the only performer. Everyone else is back up for David. He is in almost Elvis, but still he has to work at it. It's hard work, but he's got that confidence, that comfort level, that ability to capture the crowd, keep their attention. And from that point on, he is the Bowie that I first expected and anticipated and eventually got (laughs) to, to the place that he could be. He could have got there earlier, but he got distracted along the way. Presley got there earlier and then got distracted along the way. So in both cases, they were both in many ways victims of fame. How did all this happen? How does David get to watch Presley? And what was that like? I got a call. And the call was from a person, RCA, who shall remain nameless. That was my promise at the time. And the question was, would I like to meet Elvis and the colonel? And I said, I'd be delighted, but why? And they said, well, Parker is very interested to talk to you, but he doesn't want anyone RCA to know. And I said, "Okay, I can arrange that, but you'll have to provide me with some cover. You'll have to make this an invitation for David and I and some other folk from Main Man to see Presley at Madison Square Garden. And they said, we will come back to you. Another person from RCA did come back to me, told me the location that I was to go to and went and said that tickets would be arranged for the show. And I needed to make my own arrangements to get to the meeting place independently of everybody else and on my own. And if I came to that place, I'd be escorted by Presley Parker security to meet the Colonel. It was incidental that I met Presley. That wasn't originally on the menu. It was just about meeting Parker. So then Dennis Katz, who's head of ANR at RCA, offers an invitation for David to go to New York, and we include Mick Ronson. And off we go, David and Mick and I. And we fly, although David has a fear of flying, and interestingly enough Presley had a fear of flying, but In Presley's case, it might have been real. In David's case, it was not. So going on, we're in the middle of a very dense tour in the UK. We're doing well, but now we're going to have to abandon some dates to make this little weekend trip to New York. We've only got an opening on the first night of those three or four shows that he did. These are the only shows that he's going to do in New York, So this is the moment that we need to take advantage of. We cancel some shows and we make a space. We fly in order to arrive on the 9th, and we arrive that day and we go that evening. So David and Mick and I arrive that day with Angela. And we'd included Zanetta and Cherry as the main man attendants. Now we, got to the show on time obviously we had got seats close to the stage first few rows we had planned to have David in full Ziggy attire sit next to Rocco Laganestra who probably in his mid to late 40s then Rocco he's a very good looking Italian guy but very much the executive you know the whole suit tie affair that's what you did in those days meanwhile I of course was in my Tom Jones leather outfit so (laughs) I didn't really fit and Angie I don't remember what she was wearing but Z and Kathy were suitably outrageous so you know they set the tone and off we all went to Madison Square. Now seeing Presley live albeit in Madison Square Garden which was huge but we were close. The impact of presley totally packed house police every row of seats to maintain security and order the opening music that we were also using from that marvelous thus speak Zarathustra" opening also clockwork orange but they use the original we use the adapted version and then presley comes on stage the audience goes (laughs) completely crazy of course but then he begins so in that show which I think he performed for perhaps 45 minutes or an hour but it wasn't a short show it was a full show he never missed a beat he sang incredibly and he moved incredibly and of all the people that I've seen perform whether it was Hendrix or Joplin or anyone else nothing Nothing comes close to watching Presley on stage, live, close up. I never saw Sinatra, but he has that quality of Sinatra where he's not only performing, but he's conducting his band, his almost an orchestra, he's got multiple people on stage, he's got a trio of singers and another trio supporting them, he's got piano players and trumpet players and other wind instrument players as well as the, all the, the accoutrements guitars and bass and, and he is telling my gesture my pointing and sometimes by stepping back and talking to a member of the band how he wants them to do this whilst he's singing and stepping and walking and dancing and dipping up and down waving his arms like a windmill. (laughs) I mean, honestly, no uh, other way to describe that except that he is completely in charge of his performance, of the stage, the voice and the audience. When he performs his very first song, which was his very first record, and generally was always his opening song in every show it's that's all right mama the big boy crud up cover of that song which presley made entirely his own signature song then he does a complete change but somehow the same proud mary the credence clearwater song which even tina turner didn't do it better (laughs) maybe she did it as well and i saw her too she was another amazing and natural performer his love songs his all shook up songs his heartbreak hotel don't be cruel love me tender blue suede shoes hound dog they all have this quantity and quality of soul of r&b and there's no doubt that this had a real impact on david you can see when you look at What David did next when he got back to performing when he got back to recording not only did he get Freddie to start making him Presley outfits and he did actually come on at his next Aylesbury performance in England he changed in one of the interval sets before the last appearance and changes into a complete Presley outfit with scarves and uh, cape and everything else and comes on stage that way, Ziggy as Elvis. And in this other side of the Elvis-Bowie connection, aside from their shared birthdays, David starts to get much closer than he had been. In fact, I don't think he'd ever really thought about doing that until he saw Presley, is to realize not just that he can channel it into Ziggy, but that he can start thinking about R&B for his new songs. And when you look at what he did after this concert in 72, and you look at the songs that came along, you look at the Young Americans album, and you look at his R&B persona that emerges after the album, and on that album, and in Fame, for example... Shame, shame, shame! Fame, fame, fame! It's a strictly an R&B song. He gets a completely new band. He's got Carlos Alomar. He's got Luther Vandross. He's got Robin Clark. He's got his band are almost entirely R&B. He goes and records at Sigma Sound in Philly, which is the home of R&B. He writes "Young Americans" as a dance song for young people, and then tests it out by getting fans who've been hanging around inside, outside the studio to come to the studio and, and listen to it, and they dance. And he's very happy that they danced. <laughs> it means that he's somehow broken through to a different audience. And I think an enormous amount of that was from sitting there for that hour and watching this white American performer become a R&B master. And David thought, I can do that. So what came to David took longer. What came to Elvis naturally happened probably when he was even younger than 19, when he was still going to revival tent meetings and listening to and watching that audience perform. He started doing that when he was eight years old. He had friends in Memphis who were performing in clubs when he was still 10 or 12 years old. He was involved in that whole idea of R&B, which is why he chose that Krullup song early on and why he so much favoured that type of music going forward. And what, one of the things that made Presley so extraordinary was that he, white performers in America didn't do black songs. And along comes Presley and he completely embraces the R&B scene and the R&B players. And he makes friends with B.B. B. King and he records songs by um, Big Mama Thornton. And that was Hound Dog. He's very, very connected to that sound and the way it can be expressed. And he makes it his own. And no other performer had done that. He was really the first. And I think that was one of the big things that worked for him. So he achieved it very quickly. David, on the other hand, took a long time. I mean, he was, if you think about it, he got the idea for doing it. He got the idea of it when he was in his 20s, but he didn't actually get confident enough to do it on stage and and make it real until he was 36 years old. It's interesting because that show that we're watching at Madison Square Garden, Elvis is 37, but he's been doing this already for almost 20 years, so for him the struggle became about the pace of the work, the weight, if you like, of being the world's most famous person. That stress of having to keep doing what he was doing and not have any real alternative, although he tried the movies. The movies always ended up with him being essentially the same president he was on the outside. So he didn't have an escape route, really. But going back to the show... I had told Z to make sure that David and Angela get back to the Park Lane Hotel where they're staying for the weekend, along with Ronson. I leave the garden last. I stayed to check out some of the RCA folk, especially Rocco, who I planned to see on the same trip. And that particular appearance by David was quite good for... The RCA folk, because between the time spent getting to seats and waiting for the show to begin, the time spent watching the show, all the RCA people that that were there, and many of them were from marketing and promotion and press and so on, had a good opportunity to see Bowie. They'd never seen him before, except for when he signed up, and that had been a year earlier. He was a different Bowie now. And of course, He'd had success in England, which they were aware of. He'd had great reviews in America. They had now a one-on-one opportunity to see him, and some of them came and talked to him. And it was interesting because it's all of a sudden, the thing they're promoting, the thing that they're being told is going to be the biggest thing that ever happened in rock and roll, is there, and it's not what they expect they've seen the pictures but David in person is different and strange and obviously not your regular ordinary person and so they can make the comparison here's their biggest star Presley and here's this new fresh Bowie and can he replace that Presley will he be that Presley replacement that was the question that was being asked and that was a good reason for David to be there and David knew that people were looking at him that way and that he was being, if you like, weighed up to see, would he, would he be as successful as this? Could he do that, that Presley was doing? The, the answer, of course, from me and from David would be, of course he can. The real answer was, of course he can't. And very few people could do what Presley did. A handful of performers that I've seen were that immediately engaging that there was no question about anybody in that entire audience having anything to think about or look at or hear except for presley so in that way he was most likely the best live performer ever and the impact as i say on david in many ways this was the same sort of impact although much greater that David got from seeing Jim Bailey do Judy Garland a year earlier in 1971 and that led him to go away and write Starman because it was so powerful and gave him the idea that it's okay to be a man singing the part of a woman on stage. If that's okay, then I can be a man singing the part of anyone on stage. Why not? That was, again, a big opening, because the audience, which included Liza, and Liza actually joined him on stage, was an audience that could accept and actually go wild for an impersonator, a man pretending to be a woman and singing like a woman, and a very famous woman and a very famous song, and actually managed to persuade the audience that that famous performer and that famous song were on stage. They were watching it and hearing it. And at least for the moment, transformed into watching Judy. So for David, if he could be Presley, then everything would be fine. And in fact, a year or two after this particular Bowie-Presley engagement, a UK magazine published a cover where they've put on the cover a mixed picture a Bowie Presley picture which identifies Presley as the king and David as the prince of pop for everybody else who were looking at David it was clear that there was a new force in popular music, in rock and roll, in fashion and style. And this was all very similar to what Presley had achieved in his first round, if you like, the 50s and the 60s. So I'm pretty much leaving the garden at the same time as the rest of the audience. I get attacked by fans (laughs) (laughs) as I'm trying to get back to my own limo Not only do I get attacked by fans who think I'm Tom Jones and I have to tell them I'm not Tom Jones and get them to go away. Um, I also encounter Armour Ertigan and the Rolling Stones who've come to see the concert and they are headed out. Um, And I'm trying to remain very invisible in all of this. But being around Madison Square Garden that night was hard to be invisible. So once I have got away from all of that, found my limo, found my driver, we head out to the New York Hilton. And in a funny replay of my meetings with Stevie Wonder, I'm encountering what I encountered with Stevie, where you have Motown folk occupying a couple of floors of the hotel. Presley had done a news conference a press press conference earlier in the day in the hotel and now you've got people who are escorting me to see the colonel and on route I get to spend some time with Elvis so let's talk about Elvis the person as opposed to Elvis the performer first of all Elvis is tall and I've never been Tall person. I've always been a sort of average height person, probably about five foot nine. Might have been five foot ten then because I was wearing heels, like those stacked boot heels. But President is a six foot plus and very good looking boy. He's a very, very good looking boy. He's got an astonishing mixture of almost Asian, but Native American, the cheekbones and the eyes, very, very dark hair. This is Presley without any stage makeup. This is just Presley the person. He's very easygoing. He's modest. He's not flamboyant at all as a person. He's, he's very much a soft-spoken. He's got that strong southern accent. He's never lost his Memphis drawl, if you like. And he's totally relaxed and comfortable. And he's happy to talk. He doesn't have a particular conversation about anything in particular. Of course, I tell him that he's done a marvellous performance and how happy I was to be there and let him know that I think he's a great performer. We don't talk about David. I'm not sure Presley ever even knew who David was or who I was. All he knows is I'm someone who come to see the colonel and I'm obviously not American. <laughs> and... Um, He doesn't mistake me for Tom Jones, which is good. It's a good sign. And he is quite happy to just have an ordinary, normal conversation with a stranger. So we don't talk about the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or Bowie or any of that. We do talk about briefly some of the songs because some of those songs are very familiar to me. Um, And he's very knowledgeable about the way the songs are constructed and how they work and how he sees them and it's interesting because he doesn't see them as blues songs or black songs or even if you like ballads he rather sees them as expressions of figures that he grew up with or love songs And we talked a little while about love songs. And he says he likes love songs because he gets the chance to use his voice as fully as he can. So for him, it wasn't about the song as much it was about the feeling it gave him to sing it. And the feeling that he could make his voice do... He knew his voice was doing astonishing things. But he liked the idea of making his voice do astonishing things. For somebody who never had any vocal training, that's an amazing insight to think that your voice is your instrument but for Presley it was obvious from talking to him that he he thought of his voice as the instrument he did play guitar but the guitar was more of a prop than a thing than an instrument for him the real instrument was always his voice and his expression of the voice and anyway that conversation ended when I was ushered in to see the Colonel. And briefly, very briefly, because we were still having a conversation and Parker was coming into the room to start the conversation with me and then took me to another room. But for that brief moment, it was just the Colonel, Elvis, and me, and immortality. Parker, in my conversation, also not a loud person, not not in any way a person who wanted to dominate the conversation, but rather a curious person who wanted to know more about my contract with RCA. I don't know that he'd actually seen it. It sounded as though he'd heard some features of it from somebody at RCA, rather than actually reading the document. He didn't come across as somebody who was particularly aware of contracts ...in the legal sense, but much more aware of deals in the deal sense. And what he was really curious about was... ...how Hyatt had persuaded RCA to take on this artist... ...and spend this money and devote this much attention... ...when they only had a license to the recordings, didn't own them. The idea intrigued Parker. He came from an era where nobody owned their own recordings... So for him, he was older than Presley by about 10 years, I guess. So he was really a person from the 40s and 50s when record companies were either very small labels like Chess and they did, own their, they did own their own recordings, but the artists didn't own them. Chess owned them. And then you got the larger players coming in and the company that had signed up Presley originally, of course, was Sam Phillips and he was a small player. Parker bought Sam Phillips out. He bought Presley's contract from Sam Phillips, which was this, which was called Sun Records. So he bought the existing rights and whatever new rights were created. But it never occurred to him at the time that before going and doing the deal with RCA, he should say, let's keep the recordings and just license them to RCA. And that was the point that he was interested in. Now, of course, my licensing knowledge had come from long years of work, starting in the early 60s with Mickey Most, through to the 70s, and the the idea of creating licensing deals, although it was being resisted by a lot of industry players, like CBS, for example, was still a possibility, and people like Geffen had managed it. So these became distribution deals rather than licensing deals or licensing deals that were really distribution deals for a fixed period of time. And this is the conversation I had with Parker. I explained the outlines of those kind of arrangements in terms that were close to movies, which, strangely enough, Parker had a lot more information. Perhaps it wasn't strange, but he had a lot more information about how the movies worked than about how the music business worked. And that may be because he'd already made a lot of these movies with Presley or because the movies were closer to his early background, where he was dealing with country stars, and country stars were often in music movies, music movies or movies related to... that had some connection to music. For him, the idea of creating a record company that you owned that gave rights to a record company that you didn't own that then became your distributor was much more available than the form of somebody making a movie as the producer, being involved in the production, as the studio, and then having a separate, although it might just be a separate arm of that company, or a completely separate company. Now, one of the reasons that Parker knew about this was because he'd originally made a deal where he was to get a certain number of movies featuring Presley, with one film company, and then that company had lent Presley out because they couldn't find a film for him in the time frame that was permitted originally, and that was How Wallace's film company. They leased Presley out to 20th Century Fox, and that's how he came to make Love Me Tender, which was his first film. Full circle from where we began this conversation today. The reason that Parker understood the movie side of the exercise was because he'd been directly involved in that movement of having signed Presley to Company X. He suddenly discovers, because he didn't know before, that that Company X can lend his star out to Company Y and then distribute it through Company Z. And that XYZ was was a new idea for the colonel he was very quick in many ways he was a bit like alan klein who i met in the 60s he was very sharp he got things in a native sense he got things very easily he didn't have any legal training but he did understand the process and in a way that a lot of people didn't and so we parted with no arrangement other than and i have promised this to RCA and I had to promise it to Parker as well not to disclose this meeting and these conversations to anybody and so I've kept that promise I guess for 50 years and that's where this story ends except to say that at 28 years of age I was the youngest person in the room
0: Tony DeVries explaining why he, Ronno and David Bowie took a very quick trip to New York to see the King, the first time Bowie appeared in the US in full Ziggy costume. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from the Ziggy era on the Main Man Label website, along with a huge collection of other historic documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, many of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.